A few years ago, I went through all the photographs archived in the basement of the museum. Boxes full of black and white images going back to the early 1900s. It was the 100th anniversary of the Minneapolis Institute of Art, and I thought it would help tell us where we've been and maybe where we need to go. There's a photo of kids imitating a dancing Hindu god, a girl seeing a Picasso for the first time, holding her face in astonishment, boys playing with swords and armor in the medieval gallery. Hopefully not the real things, but who knows? And for some reason, a picture of a bodybuilder wearing nothing but a Speedo on the front steps of the museum, flexing. In almost all the photos, the men wear suits and the women dresses, and everyone is white. Except for one photo of two women on stage with a curtain behind them, one white, one black. The white woman is leaning back, one arm outstretched, the other at her chest, like she's shooting an arrow. The black woman is on her side, on the floor, balanced on her hip, looking out at the camera. It's more striking than I'm probably making it out to be. In most of the old photos, people look at the art with something like awe, almost sheepishly. Like, who am I, Margaret Anderson of Minneapolis, to be this close to something this valuable and exotic? But this photo of the two women, there's such confidence. Like, of course we're here, on stage, making art. Get used to it. Just for kicks, try Googling yourself right now. See what comes up. I'll wait. Probably more than you thought, right? Especially on social media, and especially since you signed up for those fun runs and Now everyone knows your name, age, and race time. Now try Gertrude Lippincott, the white dancer. A few things here and there pop up, not much. Eunice Kane, the black dancer, almost nothing. There's something about looking into lives lived almost entirely before the internet that can make people seem less important than they were. Their world's more private, their lives smaller. But sometimes, with analog lives, you just need to look in analog spaces. And you'll find, at the Performing Arts Archives at the University of Minnesota, 19 boxes of Gertrude Lippincott's life. And at the Historical Society of Minnesota, 17 more boxes including photos of Eunice Kane and other black dancers, letters, programs, films, articles about Lippincott and by Lippincott, and three audio cassette tapes. All of it suggesting a lively world of art and integration, almost entirely erased now from history. This is the Object Podcast, produced by the Minneapolis Institute of Art. The Object is made possible by generous support from Ameriprise Financial, a proud supporter of the Minneapolis Institute of Art and 
committed to the future of art and culture in the communities they serve. Ameriprise Financial, helping people feel confident about their financial future since 1894. Today, a bonus episode as we await the start of Season 6, coming up soon in March. A story about a forgotten moment in time, lost in the sorting of history, as big names overshadow the small. A story of hidden layers right in front of you, waiting to be revealed. I'm Tim Gearing. There's a famous moment in the history of modern dance, October 30, 1944, at the Library of Congress. Martha Graham and her dance company debut a ballet about a young couple on their wedding day, starting life together on the American frontier, Appalachian Spring. Aaron Copeland has composed the music. There's a great story, by the way, that Steve Martin tells about going to help interview Copeland in 1966 when Copeland is living in the Hudson Valley and he opens the door and Martin sees over his shoulder a group of men sitting in the living room wearing only what looks like skimpy black thongs. Well, just Google it. In Appalachian Spring, Copeland creates something quintessentially American, right? Which he's been trying to do for a while. And which is exactly what Graham is going for. A break from the old country, the old ways. To be great, she says, art must belong to the country in which it flourishes, not be a pale copy of some art form perfected by another culture and another people. There's an early draft of the script with a section about slavery, scenes from Uncle Tom's Cabin. And in another draft, there's a Native American character, a girl like Pocahontas. But it's Copeland who suggests cutting them both, and they are. So, in this most American of stories about America's early days, there's nothing about the first Americans, or African Americans. But there is another moment in modern dance, February 23, 1940, in Minneapolis, four years before Appalachian Spring. Gertrude Lippincott's modern dance group performs with the Bernice Brown Modern Dance Company. Bernice Brown and Eunice Brown, being sisters, African-American, performing together with Lippincott's white dancers. Pieces like Negro Lament and Statement for Peace, early messages about civil rights. Soon the companies essentially merge, forming the Modern Dance Center, the first interracial dance company in the country. The art world was slow to welcome the talents of African Americans, right? We know this. But even when things begin to change, it's in very specific, very awkward ways. Like, at the same time all this is happening in the 1940s, there's Catherine Dunham, highly intellectual African-American scholar, trained in anthropology at the University of Chicago, goes to the Caribbean after college on a grant from the Rockefeller Foundation to study dance 
and the African diaspora for a master's thesis. Haiti, 1936. For Catherine Dunham, the American dancer and anthropologist, Haiti is the last leg of a year-long study of Caribbean dance. Her research into why black people dance the way they do should have been completed by now, but she's reluctant to go home. Befriends the man who later becomes president of Haiti, becomes a voodoo priestess herself, and brings all this research to the dance troupe she starts in Chicago. And in 1939, she's invited to contribute a dance number to this long-running musical review in New York called Pins and Needles. And she does. And it goes so well that eventually Dunham decides to book her own company into the same theater for a Sunday show. It's February 18, 1940, five days before Lippincott and the Browns performed together in Minneapolis. Dunham and her group, including a Haitian drummer, stage what she calls Tropics and La Hot Jazz. And the next day in the New York Times, there's a review with the headline, Negro Dance Art Shown in Recital, Primitive Rhythms Offered. The critic calls the show a revelation of how excellent the Negro dance can be as an independent medium when it is in the hands of somebody who knows what to do with it. The review goes on to say that the final number, called Br'er Rabbit and the Ta Baby, is, quote, unhappily not up to the mark. Miss Dunham has apparently attempted to create a kind of folk ballet and failed honorably, if pretty completely. Awkward praise, right? But people are intrigued. And what was scheduled to be just the one performance turns into a regular gig. So popular, it's repeated on the next 10 Sundays. Well, before the year is out, Catherine Dunham is dancing on Broadway. And over the next few years, she takes her troupe to Hollywood to be in the movies like Stormy Weather in 1943 with Cab Calloway and Lena Horne and Bill Bojangles Robinson and then back to New York where she opens a theater school in 1945 where James Dean, Gregory Peck and Marlon Brando apparently all learned to dance people see the success including in Minneapolis and come to different conclusions in 1940 Gertrude Lippincott is 27 years old born in St. Paul, with a psychology degree from the University of Minnesota, married to a political science professor there. Somehow, over the next three years, she studies with Martha Graham at Beddington College in Vermont, earns a master's in dance, and teaches dance at Mount Holyoke College in Massachusetts. All the while, she's leading the Modern Dance Center in Minneapolis, racially integrated, right, and highly avant-garde. In a program that year at the YWCA in downtown Minneapolis, Lippincott and her dancers perform pieces like The People is Every Man, Everybody, set to poetry by Carl Sandburg with music by John Cage, the ultimate avant-garde composer, right, before almost anyone knows who John Cage is. 
Among the dancers, Bernice and Eunice Brown, whom you may have figured out is Eunice Kane before she marries. In pictures from the period, Lippincott looks much like Martha Graham. Thin, dark hair pulled back from her face, long A-line skirts, ballet flats, arms akimbo. Like Audrey Hepburn in Funny Face at the Bohemian Cafe, where she tells Fred Astaire, Isn't it time you realize that dancing is nothing more than a form of expression or release? In another photo, Lippincott wears big stripes diagonally across her body, long fingerless gloves, and a pheasant feather in her hair. She's right there at the forefront of art and dance, but choosing to do it outside of New York where it might be seen as trendy or commercial. What she and the Browns are doing, she believes, is serious stuff. In 1946, Eunice writes an article for Dance Observer, the leading dance publication at the time, called An Experiment in Negro Modern Dance, dismissing Catherine Dunham's popular music reviews as, quote, entertainment compared to what she's doing with Bernice and Lippincott. In fact, Dunham has just hired a ringer, Todd Bolander, who's performed with most of New York's major ballet companies, brought him on to help shift her image, creating some choreography to Stravinsky and asking Leonard Bernstein to conduct it. And so Bolander fires back at Eunice in a letter to the editor asserting that Dunham is, quote, the first well-known Negro concert dancer in American culture. I leave it to your readers to decide, he writes, whether a concert program based on the following music is worthy of the classification serious. Aaron Copeland, Ravel, Mozart, Igor Stravinsky. Of course, prior to 1946, Dunham featured none of these composers in her reviews. And, as it happens, her shift to serious programs proves harder than she hoped. No investors come forward to support it. One Broadway producer writes her, I am much more enthusiastic for the novelty features, which have been incorporated in your productions, than in straight classical ballet. Though, he adds, I hope for your sake that I am as wrong as can be. But he's not wrong. In April 1946, about a month before Dunham is slated to perform at Carnegie Hall, she decides at the last minute to scratch her Aaron Copeland ballet for Rara Tonga, her old primitive rhythms piece. She writes to her lawyer, for various production reasons, she's returning to her old format. By November of that year, she's back on Broadway with a show called Ball Negre, billed as a musical review of Caribbean exotica. Some critics say it's a triumphant return to form, and that she's, quote, at her best, while others say she's exploiting other cultures for, quote, cheap theatricalism, dishing up ethnic without ethic. Eunice, it seems, for better or worse is proved right. 
Around this same time, though, 1946, Eunice's sister Bernice dies. Young, tragically, in a car accident. And so whatever victory the Browns and Lippicott have achieved in Minneapolis over the commercialism of New York and Hollywood might feel a little hollow. Of the sisters, Bernice had been the choreographer, and now she's gone. Lippincott leaves town that year for a tour, introducing her approach to modern dance to the rest of the country. Sometimes she performs solo, sometimes with her longtime dance partner, Robert Moulton, a theater professor at the University of Minnesota. It's a tour that takes her to the 92nd Street Y in Manhattan and the Baltimore Museum of Art and apparently the Minneapolis Institute of Art. In fact, it never really ends until at least 1962. But when Lippincott does return to Minneapolis over the years, it's to a fantastic house on the southwest side of town, Bedford Avenue, right across the street from a house Frank Lloyd Wright designed in the 1930s. Full of light, surrounded by big old trees. Built in 1938 for three men almost always described, even now, as bachelors. All instructors at the University of Minnesota, all interested in modern design. In fact, they wrote a book about it together. Here among the modern lines of the so-called international style, Nippincott still clings to something progressive, universal maybe, in the possibilities of art. In 1948, as the post-war art world is leaning at socialism in an anti-consumerist kind of way, Lippincott pushes back. Writing a couple of editorials in Dance Observer in 1948, decrying the, quote, prostitution of art for political purposes. A scientist, she writes, is not a German, a Russian, or American, but an internationalist. And the same holds true for an artist. Great art, she suggests, is by definition, quote, non-political. Art is freedom. You get on stage and let your body do what it wants to do. And for a moment, you are whatever you want to be. Martha Graham gets a lot of credit for integrating her dance company, usually described as the first Broadway or mainstream touring dance company to do it. Even now on MarthaGraham.org, it says, quote, Martha Graham was the first to employ a racially diverse company of dancers. And she did. Hiring the black dancers Mary Hinkson and her college roommate Matt Turney, a black woman from Milwaukee. In the late 1950s, Turney played the pioneer woman in a TV broadcast of Appalachian Spring. But by then, Lippincott and Kane had been performing together for decades. There's an article in the Minneapolis Star from 1953 about an upcoming show at the YWCA in Minneapolis, where they had continued to perform year after year, even as Lippincott toured the country. It should happen more often than once a year, the author writes, but those who enjoy and appreciate the art of the modern dance usually must be satisfied with the one big program Gertrude Lippincott, Eunice Kane, and Robert Moulton put on each fall at the YWCA's Benton Hall 
Lippincott tells the author something about the program, which for some reason is being held on a Thursday at 8.13 p.m. Both Robert Moulton and Eunice Kane have new solos, she says. And I am repeating Goddess of the Moon. Eunice's solo is an experimental piece set to a Carl Sandburg poem called The Past is a Bucket of Ashes. There's also a group dance, the three of them, choreographed by Eunice, which Lippincott tells the paper is a, quote, beautiful semi-religious piece called Twas on a Holy Thursday, which is a line from William Blake. The way the story is written, you get the sense that in 1953 in Minneapolis, you would probably know Lippincott and the author, actually. Virginia Safford, who writes about travel and food and art on the so-called women's page. She hangs out with the Pillsburys and the Daytons, the famous families of the city, and eventually retires to Mexico. And you realize that in the 1950s, in the middle of the country, you can dance like no one's watching. Critics from the New York Times won't be watching. Or Broadway producers. Just open-minded folks who file into the YWCA at 8.13 on a Thursday night. And when you're written about at home, it will be as it always is, like he never left. Last winter, Safford writes, while her husband was teaching at Stanford University as a visiting professor, Gertrude was having a wonderful time as a guest lecturer in dance at nearby Mills College. It doesn't seem 15 years ago that we were seeing the young Gertrude trotting through the lobby of Northrop Auditorium with her blonde hair slicked up tightly to be tied with a ribbon and allowed to fall into what must have been the first horse's tail hairdo. Just a bit of her creative genius coming out again on top. This has been a bonus episode of the Object Podcast, produced by the Minneapolis Institute of Art and made possible with support from Ameriprise Financial. I'm Tim Gearing. Stay tuned for Season 6, starting just a few weeks from now with new episodes every month. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Subscribe now so you'll never miss an episode as the season begins. And thanks very much for listening.